So this is the first in our nine-week series on emotions, the first of nine, and we're starting with what might be appropriate for today, which is sadness. I think emotions, our emotional lives can be mysterious, to ourselves even. Some, some of us have, feel, have a lot of feels. Some of us feel like we're maybe kind of dead inside. Some of us think emotions are everything and can never be questioned. And some of us think that emotions aren't worth anything and we should never really think about them. And maybe some of us are kind of like in the middle of all that. Now, it might be that this past year, you've maybe experienced more emotions than you have in the past. And that would make you normal because it's been difficult for everybody. Uh, maybe you've been up and down a little bit more than normal. I have been. I'm generally like a steady state emotional kind of guy, but I've been up and down a lot more than I have been in the past years. And this is like only the fourth worst year in our lives. Like we've had some really horrible years, and even like the fourth worst year is difficult. So even if we didn't have to face the chaos of a pandemic, though, even if we didn't have to face realities of social injustice that are kind of be- rearing its head again, we would still have to talk about our emotional lives because I don't think any of us are really kind of there. None of us. I have not met anyone who, who is wholly, completely integrated their emotional life, their spiritual life, and all those sorts of things. I think we're all kind of messed up in this way. I think what this year has done is just expose that need just a little bit more. So we're going to look into growing in our emotional and spiritual lives because emotional health and spiritual health are tied together because emotional immaturity is spiritual immaturity. You can't be a spiritually mature person and kind of be emotionally immature. It doesn't work out. So in this series, though, um, just before we actually get into the stuff itself, we have a few working assumptions, and I'm not going to prove these. I'm just going to tell you what the assumptions are, because that's what an assumption is, and if you have questions about them, definitely um, put it on that, on that website. We'd love to chat about them. First, emotions are from God. We're made in His image. We have emotions. They're from God. So they, in themselves, have a dignity, but also, because we're made in His image, they reflect who God is. God has given us a reflection of Himself and how he's created us. So emotions are from God. They're more than just important for themselves. They reflect, actually, the infinite God. And that's a crazy thought by itself. Okay, that's the first one. Second one is we aren't perfect. Everyone would say yes, but this also includes how we feel. Our feelings themselves aren't always perfect, aren't always kind of above, um, you know, uh, above issue. Sometimes we might be prone to overlook emotions, especially difficult or inconvenient ones, like sadness, for example. I think not integrating our emotions with the rest of our lives, including our faith, does leave us incomplete. Now, some of you think, well, you know, my emotional life is okay. I'm not like up and down, really. I'm mostly kind of steady. But again, I've not really met anyone who's like really fully integrated their emotional life. And I don't think really on this side of heaven, we really get there. Like, Jesus was like that. I don't think we're really kind of there yet. Surely all of us can grow. So, emotions are from God. We're not perfect. And third, Jesus makes us whole. Jesus has come to take our imperfections and restore us. And as we follow him, he healthily leads us along the path of wholeness. He teaches us how to healthily integrate our emotions with the rest of our lives, not to rely completely on them and not to kind of pin them down and say they're nothing. And as Jesus puts us together... We also see how our emotions aren't just useful in themselves, but they're pathways to knowing God. So those are the kind of the three working assumptions that we're going to be looking at um, in this series. Uh, God gave us emotions to experience him. It's not just something for us to get and to feel. I mean, that would be good in itself. God gave us emotions for us to experience him. And the more we press into him, the more we can kind of understand that, and the more we healthily can be like that for ourselves and for the people that we love. So... 
His first message is on sadness. We're going to get to, um, to all the good ones. We're going to get to sadness. We're going to get to anger. We're going to get to uh, loneliness. We're going to get to shame and guilt. We're going to get to despair. We are going to get to gladness. It'll be right at the end. But all, especially the difficult ones that not, we don't really want to interact with, I think we have to talk about that. So here's our first message. An, uh, an emotion we all want to avoid. Who wants to be sad? Nobody. Who wants to know? Who wants other people to know that we're sad? Nobody does. We, I bet you, actually, you'd probably be surprised at how much violence uh, is kind of started from the, the kernel of sadness. I'm just like, uh, sadness leads people to be violent. Sadness also leads people to kind of put plastic smiles on their faces and pretend like everything's okay. You know, I think one thing that proves how bad we are as a culture of dealing with sadness are all the bad cliches we have when we interact with someone who's sad. You've heard all these and you've said all these. I'm sure I have done that as well. Um, it is what it is. That's something that we say, right? Now, that can be a good thing. That can be like, you know what? This is reality and I have to deal with it. It can also mean I, you know, I can't really do anything about it, so whatever, I give up. That's, I have a good friend who says it is what it is and it's kind of like a giving up kind of thing. Whatever, I give up, I don't, I don't care. Or we also can say, what doesn't kill you makes you stronger. That's not always true. If you've been through really difficult stuff, you know that's not true. It can just make you weaker. You, whatever doesn't kill you can maybe slowly kill you, just not immediately. Plus, saying that in the moment doesn't really help someone who's in pain. Or you might have heard things like this or said things or you know, experienced this yourself. Snap out of it or all the other versions of someone telling you to try harder and be better. Cheer up. You don't have a reason to be sad. Why are you like this, etc. It could be worse. We say that, right? Of course it could be worse. That is something that will always be true. You could literally be on fire right now. And you'd be like, well, it could be a really bad fire. It's only second degree burns. Like it, it all, things can always be worse. Now, that actually can be a helpful thing in if you're trying to grow someone's perspective, if they have a really narrow mindset, and you're like, look, it could really be worse. What you're experiencing is something very small. Or uh, it could just be a way of you trying to escape actually dealing with someone's sadness. And the one may, um, you might have heard and or probably thought for yourself, you're thinking of yourself too much. It's almost like shaming you for having an emotion to begin with. Maybe you're thinking of yourself too much. Maybe you are. But even if that is the case, there are probably more helpful ways to interact with that. And we're going to look at someone who, in, in Psalm 88, that thought of themselves a whole lot to compose a poem about how horrible life is and how, what sadness is about. I think all these cliches we have, they're all ways that we flee from really experiencing sadness for ourselves and, or, or being somewhat responsible in helping someone else walk through their own sadness. Because we want to flee that immediately because it's difficult and it's scary and we kind of don't really know what to do. And so we kind of give these one-liners to just kind of keep people at arm's length and move on to the next thing. I think really the ultimate problem we have with sadness is we believe sadness is a problem to be fixed. It's not first an emotion to be felt. It's not something possibly that God could give us it's a problem to be fixed. And so when we view it as a problem to be fixed, we keep ourselves at arm's length of actually experiencing the sadness that we're in. And when we overlook sadness, we miss out on God. If we're going to overlook sadness in our lives, we will miss out on God. Now, why do I, why do I say that? Are we just kind of masochists? Well, hopefully not. If Jesus has come to heal, who has he come to heal? The broken, the sick. If Jesus has come to restore, who has he come to restore? the broken, those in need of restoration. If Jesus has come to make all that's crooked straight, who has he come to make straight? Those who are crooked. And so if we don't see ourselves in need of anything, we won't be in need of him. 
If we fail to realize the reality of like our own sadness, then like, Jesus is just like a good option and maybe he's a good pal, but he's not really going to fix anything or help me walk through anything. Jesus has come to give us joy instead of sadness, and sometimes it does happen. Sometimes we get those experiences, but also, this happens regardless, also what he's done is given us a way to walk through sadness in a healthy way, a way that will allow us to us be fully human and a way for us to see God in ways that we wouldn't have otherwise. So the three kind of main things we're going to look at today as we look at Psalm 88 and a few other verses here is the first thing is we need to experience sadness. The second thing is we bring our sadness to the Lord. And the third is sadness is not the end. Let's uh, get to that first step. We need to experience sadness. And this is the first nine verses of Psalm 88. I'm not going to read through them um, all back over again. Uh, if you ha- I mean, it's, he's pretty honest. He's really honest. Uh, we're, so we're going to spend some of our time here in Psalm 88. And what, actually, the reason why I picked this psalm, this is the saddest psalm in the entire Bible. It is the only psalm that ends the way it does. If you look at the very last verse, verse 18, you have taken, me, uh, you have taken from me friend and neighbor. Darkness is my closest friend. Full stop, the end. There is no, but you are a good God. There is no, but I will praise you. There is no, yet I will lift my hands. That's it. It's the end. It ends in darkness. It's the only psalm in the entire Bible that ends that way. Every other psalm has some kind of pivot towards praise. This one doesn't. So I was like, well, if we're going to talk about sadness, let's go to the heart of the beast. Let's go to the one, the most depressing kind of one. Now, sometimes we might view church or Christianity or Jesus or worship service as some kind of like mood lift, you know, and make me happier, make me feel better about ourselves. And hopefully it's a happy thing. And hopefully you do feel better of yourself when you walk out of here. But if that's all you feel, that's a really shallow experience. We want people to experience more which is why we have to look at the word, because by ourselves, we wouldn't really want to go there very much. So sadness, it's an important emotion. Without it, we live shallow lives. In fact, I brought the book, but I left it over there. I'm not going to bring it up here. There's a book um, called The Voice of the Heart by Chip Dodd. It's very, I'll put it in, in maybe an email or a, or a WhatsApp message if you guys want to look at it. It has this great quote. It says this, If you wish to experience life to the fullest, your heart requires you to be willing to feel sadness. Sadness is the feeling that speaks to how much you value what is missed, what is gone, and what is lost. It also speaks of how deeply you value what you love, what you have, and what you live. But we don't like how it feels, and we also don't know how to deal with it, so we kind of cover it up or avoid it. That often means covering up with another emotion. That's the easiest way to flee from sadness, pretend to be happy, pretend to be angry, uh, what about this verse in Ecclesiastes? Ecclesiastes 7.3. You don't really see this kind of crocheted or put on a keychain. Frustration is better than laughter because a sad face is good for the heart. A sad face is good for the heart. That's my life verse. Yeah, that's, that's, I'm gonna, I'm clean. that's, that's my verse for the year. <laughs> sad face is good for the heart. That's not something we really come across very often, which is, I think, why we need to look at it. Before sadness can be of any help, though, we have to feel it. We have to be honest with it. We have to actually be sad. You can't get the benefits of it without kind of going there. And these nine verses tell us we need to experience sadness. He's, I mean, he's not holding back. I am set apart with the dead, like the slain who lie in the grave. You put me, you put me in the lowest pit. I'm in the darkest depths. This, he's, I mean, is he being kind of overly dramatic? I don't know. We don't know the, the situation this person's in. It also seems like he's accusing God. It's, it, the yous are, are to God. Like, you've done this. Your wrath is on me. You're putting me here. Like, what's the deal? I'm in darkness. You've removed my friends from me. You don't remember me. Now, how many of us have these same thoughts in our hearts? 
when we go through difficult things. We think we need to hide those words from God. But that's not what God wants. He wants us to bring our whole selves to him. This psalm hopefully will give you a little bit of, um, gives all of us, myself too, a, a, um, an excuse to be able to use the words that we're actually feeling and bring them back to God. It's not like he doesn't know him anyway. He's God, right? Now, this does not mean we should pursue sadness or want it, but it does mean we need to come to terms with its reality in our lives. You might be afraid to do that. And you maybe you think, oh, if I go down that road, like, that's going to be a flood that I'm not going to be able to control. And it's going to overwhelm me and I'm going to drown in it. I won't be able to stop it. But think of your emotions uh, like a dam on a big river. So you have like a dam. Here's a big river kind of flowing here and there's a dam that's stopping it. A dam can only hold so much before that it bursts or before it overflows. So the problem, uh, the danger isn't in releasing the water. The danger is in never releasing the water. If we have all these emotions and we never release them, the danger isn't the fact that we release them. The danger actually is holding them back and never releasing them. Because just like a dam, it's going to overflow. It's going to go to places that we didn't intend to. The water is supposed to go down where that river channel is supposed to go. If we never release our emotions, if we never release our sadness, it will spill over into other parts of our lives. And we won't even understand why we're acting a certain way or feeling a certain thing. A flight from sadness necessarily means cutting out deep relationships with others. A flight from sadness undercuts intimacy. If we're always going to avoid sadness, we will never risk the possibility of being sad. We'll never be close enough to someone who will possibly make us sad. And a heart that won't be honest with sadness doesn't have room for deep affection, doesn't have room for love. Cutting out sadness, ironically, cuts out space for love. And the thing that we really want, especially when we're sad, if we're not willing to go there, it will, we won't experience it. Sadness is for wealthy-hearted people. And the more we cut out sadness, the closer down the line we get to despair. Basically, despair is the end point of sadness, the absence of all hope. If you just let yourself become sad forever, that's where you end up in a crystallized version of sadness called despair. So, not excitedly, I think we should experience sadness when it's here. And let me say this, too. You are not too much for God to handle. Sometimes you're like, oh, I can't. Maybe you're too much for your partner to handle. Maybe you're too much for your friend to handle. Maybe you're too much for whoever to handle. Maybe you are. Maybe you're not. I know for sure you are not too much for God to handle. God can handle whatever you throw at him. God can handle worse than you could ever possibly throw at him. He's, not, he, he's always more than enough for what you need. And those who get their need for God, Therefore, like those who feel, who feel their trouble, feel their sadness, they ironically have the most joy-filled, happy, and like fulfilled lives. It doesn't seem to make a lot of sense like on the first of it, but when you think about it, yeah, if, if, I re- if I'm honest with where I'm at in my own trouble, that leaves more space for God to be who God is in my life, and that's an amazing kind of experience. It's a step we can't skip, unfortunately, and if I could, I would, and I try to often if I'm honest with myself. So we must experience it, though, first. Secondly, we bring our sadness to the Lord. We bring our sadness to the Lord. Don't stop at that first step, please. Don't ever stop at that first step. That's despair. There's, there's no positive moment from that. There's no hope from that. We have, there has to be something more than just experiencing it and being honest with it. We have to bring our sadness to the Lord because that's what he does in Psalm 88, the author of this psalm. He, uh, look at uh, verse 1. Lord, you're the God who saves me day and night. I cry out to you. In verse 2, may my prayer come before you. In the second part of verse 9, I call to you, Lord, every day. 
In verse 13, I cry to you, Lord, for help. So in the same breath where he's saying, Lord, you've done this to me, he's also crying out to God, saying, God, please help me. And even like the psalm itself is proof of him bringing his, his, his prayer to God. He's spending time crafting this poem, this song to God in order to bring that to him. A prayer is taking ourselves to the Lord, and that's what Psalm 88 is doing. We don't just experience sadness. We don't just kind of try and find ways to manage it. Sometimes those can be helpful. We ask God to deal with it, to change it, to fix us. The psalmist is bringing this to God over and over and over again, and he's spending time with it. You know, these psalms just don't kind of flow out of nowhere. They take time to write and craft and hone. Like Maybe, you know, all this guy's friends were like, you're just like staring, thinking of yourself too much, author of Psalm 88. Why don't you just like move on? Move on to Psalm 89. That's a lot more happier. We'll get there in a minute. But Psalm, just get out of Psalm 88, guy. Like move on to the next thing. But we're reading it today, and hopefully it's a bomb for your souls. Oh, you can feel like that, and that's okay. Now, here's the thing, though. We will bring our sadness somewhere. The question is where. Where are we going to bring our sadness to? We will definitely bring it somewhere. Maybe it's a friend you call or text immediately. Maybe it's a parent. could be that when you feel sad, you just want to kind of disengage from the world, hit up Sofa and Ben and Jerry's, which is an amazing thing to do anyway. Or maybe it's just pouring more of yourself into work to make up for it or to kind of do other things and kind of not think about it. Maybe you eat worse. Maybe you drink more. Maybe you pop more pills or maybe you smoke something. These are all common ways to flee from the Lord in our sadness. Now, some of these ways are good. Some of them are okay. Some of them are not good at all. But in our sadness, all of us are tempted to flee from the Lord. And when we do come to him, it's not all, we don't always honestly bring ourselves baggage and all. So we end up kind of hoarders, filling our rooms up with sadness. The Lord comes knocking on the door. We open it a crack, say, oh, hi, oh, yeah, I'm fine, thanks. You can come back tomorrow and close the door quickly before it all comes piling out. And we bring our sadness elsewhere. If we tend to or not, it's like that image of a dam, right? Like that water is going to overflow. It's going to go to places that we can't control, places where it's not supposed to go. So we bring it to the Lord, not just as a therapeutic exercise, even if it was just that, that might be helpful, but something more than a therapeutic exercise because we serve the God who saves us. That's what Psalm 88 is about. I'm talking to you, God, because you're the one who saves me. Verse 1 says, Lord, you are the God who saves me. In all the ways that you need saving, the Lord saves you. And this isn't just something in the past or the future. This is now in the moment. In all the ways that you need saving in the moment, that's what God is about. That's what he loves doing. He enjoys doing it. Not just in the past or the future, but right now. Now, maybe this is a question you might have to think a long, a long time about. Do you have anything sad at all from last year? I'll give you guys a few minutes to kind of ponder. You might be like, ah, last year was my year. It was awesome. Surely we all have things we missed out on, things we couldn't do. Your own health or even really difficult things, like much more difficult things, deaths of others. Of course you do. Of course you have those things. Bring that sadness to the Lord because he is a God who saves. He rescues, he delivers, he lifts up, he gives salvation. That's what salvation is. And that's who he is because what we do is we bring our sadness to him. Now, because our God is the God of love, of hope, of joy, of help, that's why we speak to him. If he wasn't like that, we wouldn't. And if you don't believe that he isn't that, then you're kind of probably not speak to him. This is more than a therapeutic exercise. It's more than a practice of mindfulness. This is asking for no less than God himself to break into your world. Mindfulness, breathing exercise, all those things can be really helpful. And it's probably good for all of us to do those things. 
But only God can break into the, our world the way that God can. But let me stop for a moment here um, because this is not a simple formula. It's not like feel sad, pray about it, get better. Cool, what's next? What am I gonna do on Monday? Like God doesn't offer and often offer immediate relief. Sometimes he does and that's great, but not all the time. And in my experience, that's kind of a rarity. The author here in Psalm 88 has been crying out day and night over and over and over again. And so he didn't get immediate relief either. Uh, actually, he says that he's been crying out day and night. That probably refers to the times of prayer, seven times a day, where people would have set times to pray to God. Uh, monks did this, and this is where kind of the times of um, a prayer for those who are, um, who are Muslim follow these kind of times of prayer because it's what Christian, Christians have done for decades and millennia. But this seems like a lot of prayer. Seven times a day, this person's crying out over and over and over again. That seems like a lot of prayer. And God isn't like delivering immediate relief. In this situation, there is no happy ending. And the reason we're looking at this psalm and learning about sadness is to bring that reality of not every life is going to be a Hallmark movie and a happy ending where people get married in the end in a town called Christmas or whatever the thing is and it starts snowing. In fact, Colin, because he saw some of those um, awesome Christmas films. I love watching really bad Christmas films. Um, he saw some of those. When he woke up on Christmas Eve and it wasn't snowing, he was really sad. He's like, oh, it's supposed to snow on Christmas Eve. Like, no, not every... Sorry, bud. <laughs> Real life crashing in. Uh, for many of us, though, last year, I mean, wasn't a great year for everybody. And for many of us, 2021 isn't going to be, you know, everything that you feel like you deserve because of all the horrible things that happened in 2020. But Psalm 88 is not by itself. It's one psalm among 150. One psalm, 150. And the way that the editors of the Psalter, this book of Psalms, put things together, they put these psalms together in particular orders for a particular reason. And if you look at the first verse of Psalm 89... I will sing of the Lord's great love forever. With my mouth, I will make your faithfulness known throughout all generations. Darkness is my closest friend. The next verse, intentionally put in there by the people who crafted this book together, I will sing of the Lord's great love forever. The Lord's great love is his never-ending, or, oh man, I'm going to mess it up, but we learned about in Ruth, the unending, never giving up, unbreaking, always and forever love. I think that's how it is. I think I got them all. Um, God's hesed, his, his covenant love, the love that he has promised and he will never give up on because it's dependent on him to come through, not for us. That's what the next verse is about. So we may not always experience happy endings in our life, but there will be a happy ending for us in the future, regardless. And we can always, regardless of whatever circumstance we're in now, this is kind of flight from reality, regardless of whatever circumstance we're in now, we can always experience God's great love. Now, it doesn't mean our circumstances are going to change all the time, but it does mean we can experience God's great love regardless of where we are. Because sadness is not the end. Ah, sadness is not the end. It's a second act. It's the middle chapter. It's not the end all. It's not the full stop. It's like an ellipsis or maybe even a comma. Your song of sadness may not end how you want, but your song is not alone. It's part of a grand theme. It's like a symphony with many movements. It's like the second or third movement where it's a bit more reflective, contemplative, slower. And we're thinking of like, you know, the dissonance of life. But that's not how it ends. In fact, a, way, a, a, a different psalm we're going to look at, if you can turn to Psalm 77 or swipe to it, just a little bit over to the left, uh, we're going to look at another psalm nearby that deals with sadness, and uh, 
the, the first nine verses of Psalm 77 are basically like Psalm 88. The author feels faint. His emotional life is affecting his his physical life. Of course, we know this from from medical data, right? If if our emotional lives are are disrupted, our physical lives will be disrupted as well. So we get that in 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 the first nine verses. The the sadness is affecting the author physically. His trouble speaking, his eyes are hurting him, he's faint. A similar situation to Psalm 88. But he gets to a point where he thinks to himself, has God forgotten me? The sadness that you're in that you experience. We always think that. God's forgotten me. He doesn't really care about me. Or he's good to other people, but not really good to me. You're not as good to me as he could be. He's holding out. Look at um, verse 10 of Psalm 77. Then I thought. So here he is. Has God forgotten me? Then I thought. To this I will appeal. The years when the Most High stretched out his right hand, I will remember the deeds of the Lord. Yes, I'll remember your miracles of long ago. I will consider all your works and meditate on all your mighty deeds. So in his sadness, he looks back to what God has already done for him. Now this is an important thing to remember because often the bigger emotion we feel, the less likely uh, or the more difficult it is for us to actually remember what God has done in the past. And the author, the rest of the psalm, we're not going to look at the rest of the psalm there, 77, lists out specifically. It's not kind of like a generic, oh, God loves me and that's great. The author lists specifically the things that God has done in this person's life. Now, in the moment, we only see a problem, and we only want that problem to be fixed. There's a circumstance. I feel pain. The reason for the pain is the circumstance. God fixed that circumstance. If that circumstance doesn't get fixed, God doesn't love me, or he's not powerful, or he doesn't care about me, or whatever. Now, that's, that's really difficult for us, because in the moment, we have that really narrow field of vision. But if sadness isn't the end, it might be that sadness is more than a problem to be fixed. It might be that as we experience it, as we bring it to the Lord, we come away with something more, a gift that we couldn't have gotten in any other kind of state. If it wasn't for his sadness, the author of Psalm 77 wouldn't have pondered these truths. If it wasn't for his sadness, the author of Psalm 88 wouldn't have put such poignant words to our experience of sadness in this world. These writers have given those feelings dignity. And you have dignity in those feelings as well. They teach us that sadness is something more to be solved. Now, sadness makes us pause, or maybe sadness, I should say, ought to make us pause. It ought to stop us in our tracks. It ought to slow things down. It ought to to make us reflect more and, and contemplate a little bit more. It also ought to drive us to prayer and a different level of desperation to God that we would have otherwise. We go to God in different ways. If we're glad, we go to God in a different way than if we're sad. Like That should be the case. And sadness, though, is not the end. What God loves to do is transform our sadness and make it something more. An example of this is, uh, is my own, my father. I, I didn't grow up with a good relationship with my father by any means. He was very abusive in multiple ways and took advantage of his power over other people, not just people in his family. My lack of a father figure in my life made me more sensitive and more eager for good other kind of father figures in my life, other like mentors, older men who could teach me about like what does it mean to be a man kind of stuff. And when God put people in my path, I would like reach out to them. I would kind of grasp on with everything, learn as much as I could from them. And, but this means in some ways that I relish the fatherhood of God in a different way from my friends that had amazingly good loving fathers. And that, Everyone should have amazingly good and loving fathers, but there's something different. There's something kind of a different kind of gift that God gives for people who don't who experience the sadness in this world. 
It's just, it's something different. God has grown a sensitivity in me that others have not had to develop. And I really wish other people wouldn't have to develop that. That would be a really good world. Unfortunately, some people do. And this has affected how I interact with other people. This affects especially how I father my own son. Not that I want him to feel the sadness of a bad father. I want him to experience the opposite of him loving you know, father figures and people, good people in authority in his life. But I think this is true of anyone who's experienced deep sadness. We all have, all have our unique areas where our fields have grown fallow. And when we're honest with them, when we bring them to the Lord, we're being made ready for God to cultivate something that he wouldn't cultivate in the same way otherwise. He, he, he's going to plant and grow something there that's going to grow in a different kind of abundance than someone else experienced in a different kind of life. So the sadnesses that we have, they, they can be transformed through Jesus. They can be uh, transformed and be and may, being made into something glorious through what he does. So that also adds a uniqueness and, and a dignity to the difficulties in life that we come through. Where once there was nothing, God can make something, and when God makes something, it is good. It is really good. But this is all a very difficult thing to hang on to by ourselves, near, practically impossible for us to hang on by ourselves. It's easy for us to believe that sadness is the end. And this is why we all need God to shape our imagination. We need, our, we need our, a holy imagination, a reformed, a retransformed imagination to do what the author of Psalm 77 is doing in the midst of his trouble, thinking back on how God has redeemed him in other past troubles. And he's not thinking just his own life, but even like generations before him, how God has worked in their lives. To believe that sadness isn't the end requires faith in a God that sees us when we experience sadness. He's there. He hears us when we bring our sadness to him, a faith that God works in all the desolate places, even especially in our sadness. And when we look back to see what God has done, we see something more than the psalmists have got to see. The psalmists looked back and saw amazing stuff of Israel being you know, freed from slavery and God setting up a kingdom and, and, and all that kind of great stuff. We get to see something way bigger. We get to see the full picture that they didn't even get to see, and yet they're praising God. Because we see Jesus in his death. Jesus in his death has become our sadness. He's taken it on. He's experienced it for himself. Not just as an exercise or an illustration, but to actually transform it. Really, to transform us through it. When we flee from our own sadness, we miss out on experiencing what he's doing through it. And as we experience pieces of sadness now, the worst thing that could ever happen to us, being completely cut off from God, the worst thing that, that worst thing will not happen to us because that worst thing already happened to Jesus. Jesus already went through that. He was cut off from God while on the cross. He died for that. So for all of us who follow him, for all of us who trust in Jesus with our whole lives, we won't be cut off. That's a promise. And that's what it means to look back and put things in perspective and be like, yet I will be able to praise you in some ways. Through Jesus' death, he has destroyed death and everything sad is becoming untrue. And in light of that reality, that's where we get to sing our songs of sadness. So we should sing our songs of sadness. Let's do that, yes. Let's experience the pain, yes. But as we bring it to the Lord, our sadness is transformed. It's the second act, it's not the end. And we hear his theme breaking through. Just as Jesus' life didn't end in death, for all who are connected to him, our lives don't end in sadness either. And Jesus didn't just die. 
he resurrected and is now ascended on the throne in power over everything. And in his resurrection, he heals us of all our sadness now. And one day he's going to heal us of all sadness full stop. Revelation 21, 1 through 4. This is a story of what our hope, a new heaven and earth. Then I saw a new heaven and earth for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, look, God's dwelling place is now among the people and he will dwell with them. They will be his people and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no death, no more death or mourning or crying or pain for the old order of things have passed away. There is no resurrection without death. There is no deep joy in this life. There is no deep intimacy or wealthy hearts without sadness. So let's experience it. Let's bring it to the Lord and let's have our imaginations transformed and live out in the reality that sadness is not the end. Now, if we aren't doing these things in our lives, here's the thing, we're still going to experience the same kind of sadness. But we won't be given a way to walk through it or a way to deal with it. We'll miss out on what God is actually doing in it. If we aren't doing these things, we can't really be a help for others. This isn't just about us, right? It's about the people that we love. So let's be a church that is honest, that prays, and that believes this. And as we come to celebrate communion, we hear Jesus inviting us. Communion is a meal with Jesus, and it is meant for those who are following him. So if that isn't for you, I'd ask for you to maybe not join us in this section here. It might uh, be worth thinking about some things that struck you from this message or things that you had problems with, and even kind of ask questions about that through the website, redeemermcr.com slash ask. But for those who do follow Jesus, the invitation of Jesus is a deeper walk. To see Jesus in our sadness, it is worth a pause to reflect. Psalm 139 says this, Search me, God, and know my heart. Test me, know my anxious thoughts. See if there is any offensive way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. So as we eat and drink in a second here, we're going to ask Jesus, where am I on my own path? Where does Jesus need to kind of take, pick me up from that and put it lovingly, put, uh, put us on his path? We can say sorry and ask him to gently correct us. And if you've never done this before, never taken communion or kind of even like surrendered or trusted Jesus with anything before, but want to, we would love for you to join us. And if you're at home, uh, maybe this is the time to grab something, some kind of bread or wine or whatever you might have around the house. This is not an invitation to uh, start drinking wine at 11 in the morning, but you know, you're on your own on that. It's an open invitation from God himself to join in with what we're doing here. Now, when we celebrate the death of Christ because there is no resurrection without death, we're not just kind of morbid people who love to obsess about death because Christ's death put to death all that, should, all that is wrong, all that should be put to death. And this meal points to the saddest moment in history, showing us that even in the darkest of the dark, God is there doing only what God can do. And even before Jesus went to the cross, he was in the garden of Gethsemane pouring out his sadness to the Lord. He didn't want to go, he didn't want to go through it just to experience sadness. But he said, not my will, but yours. This is the Son of God talking to the Father, not my will, but yours. If that's how Jesus speaks to God, that's what we, how, it's how we need to speak to God. God will be here doing what he does, bringing his light in the darkness.